the tape recorder. I'd like to again call the 305th regular meeting of the Civil War Roundtable to order. Uh, to get into the program this evening, I think it's always a pleasure, at least for me, when we are able to have one of our own members as a speaker. Doubly so this evening. The speaker tonight and I joined the roundtable almost at the same meeting, and we've become very good friends since then. Uh, his abilities as a speaker he successfully kept hidden for quite a long time. But through the cooperation of our ladies' auxiliary and also on last year's battlefield tour, we found out what he tried not to let us know, that he's an excellent speaker. And, of course, we've all known for years that he is extremely knowledgeable about the war. The way he knocked off my quizzes and minors' quizzes testifies to that. Without further ado, I'd like to present to you one of the vice presidents of the Harris Bank, Civil War Roundtable member for over 10 years, and currently our treasurer and co-chairman of next year's Battlefield Tour, Mr. Charles Wesselham. May I stand on your briefcase, Marshal? No, no uh, way. As Marshal mentioned, uh, this talk was originally prepared for the... Uh, ladies, the ladies never did a better job of making conditions ideal for the speaker. The doors were locked and nobody could get out. Now, Mr. Cohen, if you and the House Committee will take care of that. <laughs> so, uh, this morning while shaving, I finally thought of a title for this talk. A little late, wasn't it, Don? Yeah. This is called Civil War Railroads and Overview. <laughs> Who was the... No, that's the wrong thing. <laughs> but anyway, when the Civil War got started, railroads in America were about 30 years old, say a generation. Uh, so they were something relatively new and they were through a shakedown period pretty much. And I think uh, I've done some Civil War reading and most of our students of the war seem to come out with the uh, statement, the Civil War was the first modern war. One of the reasons was these railroads used it for logistical purposes to get the troops around to get them to the front to begin with, use them after they got them there to the front. Uh, this along with rifled artillery and trench warfare and telegraph and uh, air right reconnaissance and the like was a definite first. By the time the war was over, these railroads were uh, influencing not only tactics, what was going on in the battlefields, they were in influencing the strategy tremendously latter part of the war. It was an attempt to deny the enemy his use of railroads and protect your own. And they were pretty new at the start of the war, as I said. Uh, how did they get started? Greed. <laughs> the fellows that promoted these things had one thing in mind. They wanted to make money. They didn't have an, a war in mind at all. Mostly, uh, the early days, it was mercantilism, trade. Uh, you'd raise the money among the merchants of the town. If they had enough influence, they'd persuade the state legislature to help, or the city council, or both, and they would build their railroad. <coughs> Purpose, conduct trade with the back country, Baltimore and Ohio. It was started by the merchants of Baltimore in 1830. It's probably our first common carrier railroad. It, uh, object, 
bring the trade into Baltimore. It was owned, a large share of the stock was owned by the state of Maryland. Another big slug was owned by the city of Baltimore. Uh, when the Baltimore and Ohio finally got out to the Ohio River, and it took them until the 1850s to do it, the next thing they did was apply to the Pennsylvania legislature for a charter to build into Pittsburgh. They were going to kidnap western Pennsylvania for the Baltimore port. Uh, this had an interesting side effect because immediately the Pennsylvania interests, Philadelphia people, uh, used their influence in the legislature to put a stop to that. And they built the Pennsylvania Railroad as a result. The 1846 is the charter date of the Pennsylvania Railroad. Uh, originally from, only from Harrisburg. There was a connection at Harrisburg to Philadelphia. Another early railroad was the Charleston and Hamburg, 1831 built from Charleston to Hamburg, South Carolina, Hamburg being immediately across the Savannah <coughs> River from Augusta. Purpose, bring the cotton into Charleston. Don't let it go down the river to Savannah. As a digression, mildly, uh, this railroad is proud of the fact that it had the first boiler explosion in the history of United States railroading. <laughs> As things went in the South, the fireman was a slave. And he was annoyed by the sound of escaping steam from the safety valve, so he tied it down. <laughs> this was the first fatality of this nature, too. <laughs> and uh, being practical men, these early railroaders had an answer. However, by 1850, started to get their interest in the uh, Philadelphia, what the heck do they call it? I've got it here. Uh, Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore. This is the main line to Washington yet. The Camden and Amboy is the main line to New York from Philadelphia. It didn't take them long. New York Central started. Mohawk and Hudson in the early 1830s. This was going to connect Schenectady with Troy, New York. That was the first of a chain of ten railroads. It was Erastus Corning that finally put them together as the New York Central across upper New York State. He, uh... <coughs> excuse me. He, uh found a fellow meeting him at Albany whose name was something like Vanderbilt. He was backed into it by buying a streetcar line in New York. And uh, he eventually took the uh, New York Central over after the war, as everybody knows. Another interesting trunk line promotion that's done still there. Not too many people think of it today. It ran from Portland up toward Canada to Montreal. And uh, this was a big idea of Portland's, again, looking for traffic for the port. They became of great interest to English capital, and they were the ones that finally completed the road because it gave them an ice-free port. They could come over that railroad out of Montreal without being frozen into St. Lawrence River Seaway in the wintertime. Seaway, hell, it was a river. North Carolina, the early railroads ran right down to the ports. This was a real problem for the Confederacy all the time because there was only really one through line through Cal uh, North Carolina when the war started. Eventually, during the war, and if you refer to this map, and I'll apologize for it here. Uh, you'll notice when you come out of Richmond, on the Richmond and Danville, Danville being down at the state line, there's, it shows a railroad connection to Greensboro. That was built during the war, and that was the Piedmont Railroad. And until that was built, there was only one way to get across North Carolina to get down to Atlanta, and that was this Weldon Railroad that Miner had on the quiz down to Wilmington and then down, down to Charleston and Florence and so on. Uh, building a Piedmont is an example of the problems they had in the South. It was obvious early that this was a military necessity. 
It was February of 1862 before there was any real serious attempt to charter this railroad, only 50 miles or so. It had to be built. Uh, this was Zeb Vance, again afraid that build that railroad and some of this North Carolina trade in the western part of the state is going to go to Richmond. He never did really support it. The Confederate Congress jumped in. They had a very liberal subsidy. It was so good that they had no trouble financing the early construction of the road, but they did have troubles building it. They put a fellow named Myers, Edmund Myers, according to my notes, he was son of the quartermaster general, doesn't mean anything to me, put in charge of the work, and he ran into enough problems to satisfy anybody who looks for problems. The planters wouldn't loan him any slaves. They wouldn't sell him any tools. Uh, they tried to solve the problem by buying their own slaves. A third of them ran away. These labor problems were never really solved down there. And if they were bad, the material problems were worse. Uh, finally, in about January of 1863, the Engineering Bureau in Richmond gave Myers full authority to sequester, seize, whatever you want to call it, 50% of the unlaid, unlaid iron, which was being held by several railroads in the area. These carriers, by this time, had learned how to hold on to this <laughs> valuable stuff, and they weren't about to let go. But finally, by the end of 1863, it was starting to filter onto the job. And they had 35 miles of grading done by the end of the year, and 28 miles of track were in. As late as May 7, 1864, it's getting pretty late in the war, there was still a gap of four and a half miles. And finally, on May 22nd, all the track was in place. <coughs> if you wanted to call the road complete, that was pretty charitable. You could. It was not very well built, even by southern standards. Its lack of sightings made it uh, extremely vulnerable to the slightest, slightest kind of an overload. It one point, they were trying to transfer a division from Richmond to Wilmington via this railroad. Haygood's brigade took three days to cover 48 miles. Hmm. The rest of Hoke's division gave up and walked. <laughs> <laughs> and remember, after uh, Grant had cut that Petersburg Railroad, that was the only way south. <clears throat> In the south, there are other routes to the Mississippi, and you can trace those on your map. The main one, Miner's Quiz, was the Memphis and Charleston. Two ways you could reach the Memphis and Charleston from the East Coast. You could come out of Richmond on the Virginia Central, the Orange and Alexandria, and uh, down through Bristol on the Virginia and Tennessee, and into Chattanooga. Uh, another way was down by way of Atlanta and up the Western Atlantic into Chattanooga again, you connected with the Memphis and Charleston. So there was a nice railroad. There was an incomplete route. That's another tale of not getting things done. Come out of Vicksburg on the uh, Southern Railway of Mississippi, you get to Meridian. And that's as far as you went the time the war started. The jump of around 40 or 50 miles uh, over to a place, uh, and I've forgotten the name of it, but over west a bit of Selma, there was a big gap in the railroad. Uh, from Selma to Montgomery, you could take the river. So they transshipped by river. Then you had a combination of railroads that uh, went up to Atlanta and finally could get around that way. This again was obviously a military necessity. So they started out to do something about that. Again in the spring of 1862, let's build a connection. Well, there was a little confusion. The Confederate Congress didn't know exactly which railroad they were subsidizing. They had the interesting situation where they granted the subsidy to one road so another road could build the track, but eventually it got done. Uh, 
they did it from, uh, but as far as the Tom Bigby River, there was no bridge there, and then they had a ferry to, uh, again, I've forgotten the name of the bluff, it was something. There was a ferry ride, you got up to the uh, next stop, then you could take the railroad to Selma, transship by boat, and then uh, you got to Montgomery and you were on the railroads again. Uh, this wasn't exactly a, uh, what you'd call a great route and never did amount to much. <coughs> 1862, December, they got that one done, so they did that pretty well, pretty fast time. Uh, these embryo trunk lines had other problems. This was true north as well as south, this particular one. That's the brakes in the gauge. Now today we look at a railroad track and you see they're four feet eight and a half inches between the rails. That's from the inside edge of one rail to the inside edge of another. Time of the Civil War, this did not pertain. In the south, particularly in the southwest, you know, west of the east of the Mississippi, southwest in those days, the common gauge was five feet. In Ohio, it was four feet ten inches. Most of the northeast, it was four feet eight and a half inches, except that the Portland and Ogdensburg Railroad that I mentioned a while back was five feet six inches. Incidentally, it had been built five feet six inches, so they couldn't get standard gauge freight cars in there and transship them to Boston. Portland was going to make sure that didn't happen, so they built it five feet six so it wouldn't. And uh, as an aside, this thing eventually became part of what is now the Canadian National Railway System, and in the 1870s, they had to convert all that to four foot eight and a half inch gauge. Cost them a lot of money. Now, uh, uh, there's lots of reasons for this. I like this one best. You don't have to believe it. Uh, the first railroads were over in England. They were colliery, colliery tram lines. And the carts on these railroads were four feet, eight and a half inches between the rails. That's what fit their wheels. And the reason was the wheels, so the story goes, fit the uh, ruts in the old Roman roads, which were three cubits or four feet, eight and a half inches apart. I like the story. I wish I could really believe it. There's another school of thought. It says they were really trying for five-foot gauge, but it made a difference how you measured it. Uh, if you're strap iron, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit, strap iron rail was three and a half inches wide, and you measured from center to center, you had four foot eight and a half inches on the inside measurement. Or if you were using a two-inch rail and measured from center to center, you came up with four feet ten. Now, that's a possibility. Anyway, it was there, and why? Well, don't forget, after all, there were local jealousies, how these roads were built. And uh, that was part of it. Another part was that after all, they'd been transshipping stuff for years, you know. You got to the end of the river or the canal or whatever, and you put it on a cart, and you were used to loading and unloading. There didn't be, seem to be much of a problem. If you were a, a railroad entrepreneur and you connected uh, town A with a railroad B, you were, probably didn't want to connect with him because uh, he might get a hold of your cars and God knows what he'd do with them before he brought them back, if he ever brought them back at all. So there was that inhibition. Then there were other factors. For instance, uh, if you were a drayman or an innkeeper in this junction town, you really didn't have very much interest in uh, having through traffic. It was very nice if it stopped right there. You'd make a little money hauling the uh, by wagon from one freight depot to another. <coughs> if you were an innkeeper, most of the people didn't uh, ride on the trains overnight, so they put you up there and you take the morning train out and continue your journey. Uh, this was a real problem as late as the time of the Civil War, and it was uh, true in such cities as Richmond, as in Baltimore, and in Philadelphia. 
Now, Richmond, I think we all know about because they got to the point where they were hauling cars from one road to another, what wanted to do a tramway up a hill. Baltimore, we all remember the set to at the very start of the war when the troops were marching from one railroad to another. But Philadelphia, this was really true, and a lot of people didn't appreciate it. Uh, Erie, Pennsylvania in the 1850s, to show you how this could get serious, Erie was at the gauge break point. The 4'10 Ohio gauge ended at Erie, and the 4'8 started on the way to Buffalo. And at one point, they actually had prevailed upon the Pennsylvania legislature to decree that this is the way it would be from ever onward. Uh, Erie City Council, uh, when this legislation was repealed and made it possible to build a four-foot, eight-and-a-half-inch railroad through there, the Erie City Council said this was obstructing the streets. They swore in a posse, and they went out to stop this obstruction. They tore up several miles of track, burned down a bridge, and then the miscreants from Buffalo came in with some federal marshals, and the posse met the federal marshals, and two citizens were wounded and four hauled off to Pittsburgh by the marshals. This is known as the Erie War. Finally, the marshals themselves were arrested by a local judge. <laughs> but they gave bail and were released. <laughs> Eventually, Erie gave up, and they have a railroad track through there now. I don't think much stops anymore. Uh, construction. Let's talk about that, because uh, I guess most of us are old enough to remember when the railroads were king in this country, or what a passport. We can remember them in their pay heyday. This was the beginning. You're looking at rail even today, it's steel. Section is 39 feet. It weighs something like 100 to 140 pounds to the yard. Now steel according to my information, lasts about four to eight times longer than iron. In the Civil War, they had iron. And a good iron rail would be 18 to 24 feet long, and it would weigh 35 to 70 pounds to the yard. It wore out rather rapidly. Now, that's the best kind of T-rail. This T-rail is what we see on the tracks today. Uh, some areas, particularly in the south, were still uh, using strap iron. Richmond and Danville had about 50 miles of strap iron and went past for main line. Strap iron was a strap, iron band, three and a half inches wide, half an inch to an inch thick. It was laid on a stringer, which was in, in turn fastened to the ties. Now this didn't permit very rapid operation of trains, nor very heavy trains. And it was even a little bit dangerous because you see this strap iron where the rails met, you know, they just butted up against each other and they spike them down. Trains passing over, light as they were, would cause this to work loose a little bit. And pretty soon a train comes by and the strap iron gets over the wheel. And it came right up through the floor of the car. This was called a snakehead. I think some of the passengers called it that, among other things. <laughs> a little bit dangerous, maybe. <laughs> Then they also had U-rail, which uh, was shaped like a U and laid on its uh, upside down, which was light. There's some of it down the Smithsonian Institution. The next time you're down in Washington, you can take a look at it. Uh, they strapped the, the ties, widely spaced, my guess would be two feet or thereabouts. Uh, they didn't set these rails on tie plates, put them right on the ties, wore out rapidly. Nobody thought about treating ties. They wore out more rapidly still. Ballasted roadbed was a, a rarity. It was right on the dirt. 
some stone bridges, uh, some of the Baltimore and Ohio are still going. They were in the original railroad, but most of them are wood. And they hadn't even gotten to the Howe Truss yet. The Howe Truss was a dangerous one when they finally did start to build it. Uh, single track roads for the most part. Particularly in the south, a lack of adequate sightings, which really hurts the capacity of a single track railroad. Actually, after all, uh, only one train can be on the track at a time. And if they're going to meet each other, somebody has to take sighting. On the RF and P, there was five miles of sighting total on 75 miles of railroad. On the Virginia and Tennessee, there was 10 miles on 204 miles of railroad. Memphis and Charleston had 250 miles of railroad and was well, relatively well healed with 20 miles of sight, made for a very low capacity road. Poor track naturally did not permit any kind of speed and operation or very heavy loads, and this was just as well because the equipment they were using couldn't go very fast or haul very much anyway. Locomotives were the, what they called the American Standard. Had four-wheel pony truck and four drive wheels, and they weighed, all told, somewhere between 50 and 30 tons. As an aside, the uh, big boys, as they called them on the Union Pacific, weighed about 600 tons. There was the apex of the steam locomotive. What's that, 20 times in size? The locomotives they had at the time of the Civil War almost universally burned wood. The Pennsylvania Railroad, extremely progressive railroad up until its recent troubles, was just about completely equipped a coal burner by the time the war ended. Being a wood burner, this locomotive had one of those fancy balloon stacks that looks so pretty when you see those old prints. Now, this wasn't put on there solely for beauty. It was really a spark arrester because they're burning wood, they'd have burned down the countryside if they hadn't done something about controlling it. Uh, if you were going to uh, lubricate the valves while the train was in motion, the fireman crawled out his door and down the gangway and uh, took his bucket of tallow along with him and dropped it into the valve chest which is probably the reason that in railroad slang, uh, one of the terms for firing was tallow pot. Uh, brakes might have one on the locomotive, probably a water brake. Most of them, in order to put water from the tender into the boiler, you had to have the locomotive running. Uh, if you were from a standing start, one of these cute locomotive engineers would grease the rail a little bit so the wheels would spin, <laughs> pump would work. Uh, cars, they were kind of primitive too. Freight cars, maximum capacity 10 tons. Today, 40 to 70 is the average box car. They're all wood but the wheels and the coupling. They were joined by a link, about gay long, and the link would be guided into a slot, and you dropped a pin through the slot, and the train was coupled. You could identify <coughs> brakemen and conductors by their missing fingers, because <laughs> they stood between the cars, and that's the way they coupled them. Uh, if, you know, the guy, the engineer didn't push too high and mash him. Uh, braking was in its infancy, too. You set the brakes by hand, and they were still doing this as in the 1870s when Commodore Vanderbilt threw George Westinghouse out of his office. Commodore said he didn't have any time for fools who were going to propose to stop train with wind. So the brakeman was a brawny young man with a big hickory club, and he agilely jumped from car to car, no matter the weather or the ice or what, uh, setting brakes whenever the engineer gave one toot, which was down brakes. And in those days, a 10 to 20 car train needed three brakemen to stop them. And they still need three brakemen when they don't do anything but ride anymore. That's how those <laughs> things get started. <laughs> Passenger equipment was also small, rickety, ceiling, say, seven feet small windows, 
illumination for night travel, if there was any, a whale oil lamp. If they had any heat, it was a wood stove. And that wasn't very good in case there was an accident because the wood stove would frequently become upset and things would start to burn. With this sort of track and equipment, the trains didn't run very rapidly, as I mentioned. Uh, this is probably just as well because the frequent accidents weren't quite so gory. Secondly, uh, the equipment would have fallen apart if the roadbed didn't. Passenger trains, fast ones, might average 15 miles an hour and then a real burst of speed get up to 40. Freight trains did well to average 10. Incidentally, they were still doing that as late as 1910. Uh, sweeping cars were experimental if they existed at all. Most of them may have a bunch of shelves. That's where you slept. If you wanted to eat en route, you packed your lunch, or you chanced the roadside meal stops. Our good Western friend here, Mr. Russell, could uh, <laughs> tell us a lot about them during the post-Civil War era. Uh, most of the before the war, as I mentioned before, the passengers would stop overnight at hotels, but by the time the war started, the trains were so crowded, people were afraid to get off, so they stuck it out. I imagine most of you at one time or another have seen the diary of George Templeton Strong, who was the treasurer of the Sanitary Commission and a blue-stocking New York lawyer. His diary is replete with complaints about the 12-hour journey to Washington, which he made by sleeper a few times. You can do it today on the Metroliner in three hours. Well, the freight trains, 10 to 15 cars, 8 tons per car. And by the time of the Civil War, and don't laugh, by the time of the Civil War, even this kind of transportation was winning the comp competitive battle. Uh, which brings up an interesting factor, railroad economics. The basic principles are as sound today as they were then, and I don't think they're understood even today too well. Railroads are a heavy capital user. Once you've got the track built, the additional trains you run over it don't cost you very much. Once you have the train and the cars, the more often you can use them, the heavier you can load them. It doesn't cost you very much. And we all think of railroad or any kind of transportation in terms of so much per mile, so much per ton mile for freight, so much per passenger mile for people. And I think we're making a mistake when we cost it that way. The expense comes in loading the goods and getting it out again, not in carrying it. Well, relatively not in carrying it. Same thing with the passengers. And this is one of the reasons I believe, my view, that the railroads have trouble today. They can't use that big plant as effectively as they should. Well, this was true at the time of the Civil War, too, as I said. And uh, when the Civil War traffic finally got going, these fellows were in position to do pretty well. To give you an idea, tariffs, uh, goods were hauled, $18.61, <coughs> 2 to 4 cents per ton mile. Passenger uh, rates in proportion. What did they pay the help? Well, conductors and engineers made 60 to $70 a month. <coughs> Very good money. A railroad superintendent, three to $5,000 a year. I have never been able to find out what brakemen and firemen made, but it certainly wasn't going to be as much as a conductor and engineer. Uh, in the South, the, uh, well, here I got some more. Machinists, two to $3 per day. There were some high-paid tradesmen. Yardmasters and dispatchers got about the same amount as conductors. Sections hands in the south were going to be slaves, pretty much. And uh, in the north, you were competing with farm labor. Here is one I found in the 1870s, which is well after the war, of course, but here's a water boy out in Kansas getting $15 a month. So they didn't pay very much, and they didn't have to, and they got very high rates, 
And despite all that, they were chasing the canals and the steamboats out of business because they were a more efficient transportation medium at the time. Well, then the war started. First of all, they had a little problem because as soon as the war started, normal commercial intercourse stopped. And the railroads laid off their help. They didn't have any business, they laid off the help. That went on for a few months or a year, and then pretty soon here's all the wartime traffic, and then they went looking for their help. It was in the Army. Now, they fought a losing battle all during the war. In the South, they had particular troubles, because in the South, they would draft the railroad workers without any compunction whatsoever. You couldn't get them back out of the Army. The railroad managers in the South complained very bitterly about this, but didn't do them any good. And, uh, they were out of help, they were out of railroad, they had all, all kinds of problems. Uh, some railroads at the time of the war had particularly difficult problems. Think about the Baltimore and Ohio. First of all, the Baltimore and Ohio had 500 miles of track at the time the war started. Every nickel's worth of it was in slave territory. They had a very able president, a fellow by the name of John W. Garrett. In 1859, he was publicly calling his railroad a southern line bulwark of defense in case of sectional conflict. time the war started, the first thing that happened was the federal government told Mr. Garrett and his B&O Railroad that if they uh, transported rebel troops or freight, that was going to be treasonable. Virginia governor told him, and a lot of this traffic, remember West Virginia was still part of Virginia, Virginia governor threatened to seize the road if they did any work for the Union. Strangely enough, the uh, Confederates permitted flour to come out of the Shenandoah Valley into Baltimore. Coal out of West Virginia, what we now call West Virginia, flowed to the Federal Navy over the B&O Railroad. And the reason for this was the Virginians didn't want to antagonize the Marylanders, who they still had some hope of uh, enticing into the Confederacy. Uh, soon as we all know, Stonewall Jackson was given command at Harper's Ferry. And he worked out one of the greatest coups of the war in railroad rating told Garrett that the passage of the trains disturbed the repose of his troops, and all trains, both directions, would have to come through Harper's Ferry between the hours of 10 and 2, 10 in the morning and 2 in the afternoon. He got this going very well, and there was the busiest stretch of railroad the world ever saw for those two, four hours. May 23, 1861, he stopped all the trains. He blocked the road from both directions at Cherry Run on the uh, west and at Point of Rocks on the east. And there were some 56 locomotives and 300 freight cars locked up there. Fourteen of them he shipped uh, down the Winchester and Potomac to uh, Winchester, over the Valley Pike to Strasburg, and they were using the Confederacy uh, until they wore out, and one of them was found down in North Carolina when the war ended. Uh, the rest of the equipment was eventually destroyed when he destroyed the railroad line between Point of Rocks and out, I think, almost as far as Martinsburg, if I remember correctly. He uh, knocked all the bridges apart, burned this equipment. A lot of it was coal. It was burning down in ravines for months. And this is one of the factors that turned Maryland into a Union-supporting state. He made a Union man out of Garrett. <laughs> uh, an interesting sidelight here, and I picked this up out of Lord's book on uh, Haupt, Herman Haupt. Uh, the Baltimore and Ohio was a competitor for westbound business with the Pennsylvania Railroad. The Pennsylvania Railroad had an affiliate, now part of the line, runs down from Harrisburg to Washington, known as the Northern Central. 
And who was running the War Department at that time? What was his name? Simon Cameron, who had a lot of friends on the Pennsylvania Railroad and a personal stock interest in the Northern Central. Uh, some of his associates in the War Department were a former executive with the Pennsylvania Railroad, one Tom Scott, a very great railroader after the war, and a former telegraph operator in Pittsburgh, soon to become famous in another connection, a fellow by the name of uh, Andrew Carnegie, who was originally a Pennsylvania Railroad man. These people didn't seem to have much interest in supplying army protection to the B&O Railroad. <laughs> in fact, they let the Confederates tear it up all they wanted to. Finally, the North decided they need, really needed a line. They put some troops out there, and Garrett went and rebuilt it at his own expense. Of course, he got to do this many times throughout the war. <laughs> Down in the South, the uh, railroad people had an early attack of excess patriotism. <coughs> they offered to handle all military traffic free of charge. They soon got over it. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, they had their problems throughout the war. The history of Southern railroads is replete of these long arguments between the Southern government and the managers of the railroads. Uh, down in the South, they had a really severe problem. There were only very few plants. One of them was the Tredegar Works, and there was one in Atlanta and one at Nashville that could produce locomotives, railroad iron, and so on. In Nashville, they lost pretty near immediately, and the others were never permitted to do anything for the railroads. No locomotives were built. No rails were rolled, and they made do as best they could. They were inadequately equipped, and they just went from bad to worse, and I'll touch upon that a little bit later. The Northern Lions had their problems, but they didn't have problems getting equipment. They had some problems getting personnel, but uh, their, uh, their problems were non-existent in comparison. They could get rail, they could get equipment. Uh, there was even some railroad building going on during the war. Uh, one other thing happened. There were some crop failures in Europe, and boy, these trunk lines really started to work. This is the real genesis of these northern trunk lines was at this time, because the grain was coming out of the northern states, out of the Midwest, going to Europe over these trunk lines. Well, now let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the things that happened during the War of the Railroads. Raiding. I mentioned that this became a way of life in the armies. We talked a little bit about Stonewall Jackson's fund with the Baltimore and Ohio. And this was probably the only northern road that suffered at all, but in the south, oh boy, things were greatly different. Uh, Memphis and Charleston was cut very early. I would say after the Federals seized Corinth in early 1862, uh, the south had lost to Memphis and Charleston as a lateral artery. Uh, they never really did do it with that Selma line as we covered There'd be occasional attempts to repair it by the Southerners, but they never got anywhere. Uh, the North, on a couple of occasions themselves, tried to repair this railroad and use it. Remember Buell after the Corinth and uh, Halleck split up that big Western army, Buell started for Chattanooga. And at the rate he was going, it was going to take him forever because he was trying to rebuild this railroad as he went. Uh, Sherman, when he was called to Chattanooga after the Battle of Chickamauga, because he had some ideas of rebuilding the railroad as a supply line, he soon gave it up and marched across country. Both occasions, this frustration was caused first in the first case by Bragg taking the initiative, and we're going to talk about that a little later, outflanking Buell. Buell had to go back to fighting and stop railroad building. And second, Sherman decided that he had to get to Chattanooga and the heck with the railroad because they wanted to get going down there. Another example would be Grierson's raid 
primarily, as we all know, an attempt to distract the Confederates down at uh, Vicksburg. But nevertheless, he was tearing up the Mississippi Central as part of the campaign. He did so most successfully. After the fall of Vicksburg, uh, Sherman seemed to be making a pretty good career out of trying to tear up the railroad from there to Jackson and on beyond, to Meridian. Uh, matter of fact, isn't it Liddell Hart that talks about Sherman's peculiar fascination with tearing up railroads? He loved to do it. In the Virginia Theater, the origin Alexandria, used constantly. I don't care what Miner says. <laughs> uh, by both armies as a transportation medium. So was the RF&P. So was the Virginia Central. And much of the campaigning from 1864 on is the attempt to deny these railroads to the Confederacy. Wasn't uh, Custer's first last stand out at Trevilian Station on the Virginia Central? Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh, by 1864, the winter of 1864-65, the Union people were able to seize control of the Virginia-Tennessee Railroad out there in far southwestern Virginia and tear up quite a good bit of it. Uh, the destruction wreaked on these federal railroads by the Northern Infantry in particular. The cavalry, as you know, Sherman always complained the cavalry couldn't tear up a railroad. And the, in the infantry did fairly well. Uh, they'd take the track and they'd turn over a section of it strip the ties off, put them in a pile, pile the rails on top of the ties, and set the thing alight. And when the iron rail heated enough, it would bend of its own weight, and then they'd improve upon that. They'd wrap it around a tree, Sherman's necktie. And Herman Hopped had an even better idea. He had a couple of U-shaped clamps, hook them onto the base of the rail, and a couple strong men on either end, and they'd twist. Now, this was particularly damaging to the South. They had no railroading facilities, remember? And the only way they're going to restore those rails was roll them again. They had no way of doing it. Uh, let's think of some of the active battles and how the railroad played a part. I'm not trying to be encyclopedic on this, but just give you some examples. First, Bull Run. <coughs> the whole battle turned when uh, Johnston's troops from the valley came in over that Manassas Gap Railroad and lit on the federal flank. I still think the North could have won it if they could have kept the if either they could have kept the, Fed, the Confederates in the valley or they had been denied in that railroad. Second bull run. The whole damn campaign from the southern point of view was trying to get at uh, Pope's communications on the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. First at Bristow Station and Rappahannock Bridge and up before that Rappahannock Bridge. Uh, Battle of Shiloh hinges on the railroad, that railroad junction at Corinth. We've been down there as recently as three or four years ago. There are more railroads there now than there were then, but it was a key junction. Mobile and Ohio crossed the Memphis and Charleston there. A big north-south route and a big east-west route. And when Buell moved on Chattanooga, as I mentioned, Bragg's answer was to run around Buell's flank. And it's a real good movement. What he did was take his troops, he was at Tupelo, and uh, he went down to Mobile and Ohio to Mobile. He crossed Mobile Bay to Tensas, came up the uh, Alabama and Florida to Montgomery, he Montgomery and West Point to West Point, Atlanta and West Point to Atlanta and the Western Atlantic to Chattanooga, and he was on Buell's flank, and we all know that resulted in Mr. Davis's favorite battle of Perryville. Uh, <coughs> Let's talk a little bit about Chickamauga. 
where the South did a brilliant job, considering what they had to work with, in getting, depending on who you read, 12,000 or 20,000 troops under Longstreet, the Army of Northern Virginia up north of Richmond, down those rickety railroads and up to uh, the Chickamauga area. They did this in remarkably fast time. How they did it at all, because they had no staff work, such as the North exhibited later, when they answered that, uh, is hard to believe. They tied up the railroads completely. No other traffic moved while this was going on. Uh, some of the equipment never recovered. Troops were chopping holes in the side of the freight cars so they could see out and wave at their girlfriends. And uh, they got them down there, and this decided to battle Chickamauga as that core. The federal answer was even more interesting. They took some two corps, two small corps, they mounted to 23,000 troops, and put them under hooker, and uh, sent them down to the uh, Chattanooga area. September 25th, so within a week of the battle, the vanguard was out of Culpeper on the Orange and Alexandria to Washington. Took the B&O to the Ohio River at Benwood, the Central Ohio to Columbus, and that's the railroad miner, not the B&O. <laughs> the Indiana Central to Indianapolis, the Jefferson Madison in Indianapolis to Madison, Indiana, ferried to Louisville, L&N to Nashville, and the Northern National in Chattanooga to Stevenson and Bridgeport in Alabama. Set this up in 20 car trains, 700 men to a train, 915 on the 27th, that's two days later, 12,600 men, 33 cars of artillery, 21 cars of baggage were out of Washington. Going at 15 minute intervals. No trains were delayed for any reason. In fact, General Shorts got left behind at one stop and he wanted to stop the trains till he caught up. Stanton had the right answer to that. He said if it didn't stop interfering with the movement, he was going to arrest him. <laughs> By uh, the 29th of September, the head of the column was in Louisville. The last train had been out of Washington at 1.30 in the afternoon on the 28th. Head of the column was at Bridgeport, Alabama, September 30th. That's 1,233 miles in five days. The final troops were in on the 8th. They'd gotten 23,000 men down there in 14 days. A really remarkable achievement. Sherman's Atlanta campaign depended entirely on railroads. This gives you some idea of the industrial power of the North, how they knew how to use these roads. They used 473 miles of single-track road to supply an army of 100,000 men and 35,000 animals for five and a half months. They took the director general of the military railroads for the army, McCallum, and they sent him out here. Here's your job. He had 12,000 men in the Department of Transportation running the trains. He had 5,000 men in the Department of Construction. When they got down there in March of 1864, they had 47 locomotives and 437 cars. They decided they needed 200 locomotives and 3,000 cars, and two months later they had them. Sherman, in his diary, says he couldn't have conducted the Atlanta campaign without that railroad. And remember when we were down in that Corinth tour, Ed Bars made the point that a lot of this uh, campaigning that Forrest took part in, Bryce's Crossroads and so on, were really Union diversionary attempts to keep Forrest busy attacking these uh, movements on Mississippi points to keep him away from this uh, National and Chattanooga Railroad. Confederates, no matter how hard they tried, were never able to interrupt that supply line, tenuous as it appeared to be. 
And of course, with 5,000 men to rebuild it, uh, <laughs> not surprising. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the conditions the, Fed the Confederate railroads are in for the war started to hurt them. Winter of 1862-1863, uh, the Army of Northern Virginia was being supplied uh, from Hanover Junction. Uh, Colonel Fontaine, who was one of the military railroad men in the South, wrote a six-page letter to President Davis complaining of his lot. He said his main trouble was he didn't have enough people to run the road, the slave owners weren't hiring their slaves out for fear they might run away or be captured. Foreigners employed during the winter had run off to the enemy when a Richmond judge ruled them liable to conscription. Uh, the labor shortage was leading to a serious de deterioration of track and roadbed. So many ties and rails were impaired that one daily passenger train was taken off and the load of freight trains reduced one-fourth. Even so, there had been four derailments in a period of five days in March and each time one or more virtually irreplaceable freight cars were broken up. <coughs> Fontaine reported, the ash pans of our engines pressed down the mud like a plasterer does with his trowel. 1863 on the Petersburg Railroad and the Richmond to Danville, uh, one federal prisoner no noted that so many of the cars were worn and dilapidated that they had to be left behind, and the engines were so light that they could not pull a full train up a normal grade. In the Richmond of Danville, the uh, locomotives broke down so frequently that uh, in 1863, on several occasions, two days were required to make a 140-mile trip. Uh, 1863 and 64, that winter on the Orange and Alexandria, uh, months between the Gettysburg and Wilderness campaigns, chronic deficiencies, uh, hard to see how they could support an army on this line of supply. Rails were wearing out. Cross ties were in such an advanced state of decay that trains were obliged to travel at speeds of five or six miles per hour. Uh, there was a shortage of rolling stock because some of the cars had been broken up earlier in the year while in the, on the Virginia Central. Others were loaded with government property had been sent south of, Washington, of Richmond and never been returned. Only seven serviceable locomotives for the entire line between Lynchburg and Orange. Uh, later, Averill raided the Virginia and Tennessee. Uh, even though uh, he left and the South was able to patch it up a little bit, uh, there was never any relief. At that time, Raleigh, North Carolina was the most distant point from which supplies could be shipped. After an additional year of hard service and deterioration, they were obliged to haul supplies as much as 700 miles from points in Alabama, Georgia, and South Carolina. Uh, in order to uh, keep the Army together at all, they'd scattered the cavalry and the artillery so the horses wouldn't need the forage. And even so, the railroads were very, barely able to keep up. The federal government, on the other hand, knew how to use military railroads. I mentioned McCallum, who was the superintendent. He had a strange situation because there was a uh, superintendent as well as a military director and superintendent. The superintendent, theoretically a junior officer, was a general, and McCallum was a colonel. The general was Herman Hout, extremely able railroad man. He was a West Point graduate. He hadn't served in the Army very long before he started uh, with the Pennsylvania Railroad. He was an authority on bridges. At the time the war started, he was digging the Hoosick Tunnel, still very much in existence. This proved to be uh, the reason he didn't finish the war in the Army. He never really accepted his Brigadier General's commission because he wanted to keep his hands free to go back and deal with his problems with the Hoosick Tunnel. He had a lot of money tied up in this of his own, his own funds. 
that he was tremendous while he was with the Army. He was the fellow that organized these construction people, and he did it brilliantly. Uh, his bridge over Potomac Creek on the RF&P drill uh, brought Lincoln's admiration. You know, upon my word, gentlemen, this man hopped his built a bridge that, uh, you know, if you remember how tall, trains running it over it every hour, and upon my word, there's nothing in it but bean poles and corn stalks. Well, finally, in the uh, fall of 1863, Hopp did yeoman service in the uh, Second Bull Run campaign, getting this railroad in shape for Fredericksburg campaign. Uh, he uh, really did a tremendous job, although railroads didn't play a particularly important part in the Gettysburg campaign. The northern line of supply was over some very rickety railroads coming into Gettysburg. And it was Hopp that organized all that, but it was that fall that he left the Army. And it was the Hoosick Tunnel again, because the Hoosick Tunnel was a competitor with the Western Railroad of Massachusetts. The Western Railroad of Massachusetts people had the clout with Governor Andrew, who came down to Stanton and said, get this guy out of here, hoping to force him into the Army so the Hoosick Tunnel wouldn't compete with him. Hopped left the Army and went with the Hoosick Tunnel. Uh, these military railroaders in the, south, in the north were good. No question about it. They did the job every time they were called upon. They had authority to seize the railroads, and they used it when they had to, particularly in the South. Finally, the war ended. The whole Petersburg Appomattox campaign, Miner's question brought that out tonight, was an attempt to cut the railroad lines into Richmond. And the war finally ended when the Kester's uh, cavalry got in front of Lee at Appomattox and short-circuited his supplies. Uh, so the war was over. What happened then? All the Southern railroads were wrecks. Strangely enough, they didn't stay that way very long. They were initially short on equipment. The roadbed was destroyed, but they still had some personnel that knew what they were doing. There wasn't much traffic, so it didn't take much of a repair job to put this railroad back in operation, and certainly enough to handle what traffic was available. Some of them, some of the more key lines, Mobile and Ohio and these sort of railroads, were making money before the end of 1866. Secondly, most of these southern lines had been financed by sale of stock and not by bonds, so they had no debt outstanding and they were free, as they were able to show potential, go up to the Wall Street and borrow some money, get going again. Thirdly, they were largely five-foot gauge, and they didn't call it war surplus sale in those days, but the U.S. Military Railroad had an awful lot of five-foot equipment that didn't seem worthwhile converting in the north. And it was sold at uh, bargain prices to the south. Uh, in the north, of course, gosh, this is the Industrial Revolution really takes hold after the Civil War, to my mind. Uh, railroad building is a big part of it. Covered the West with railroads. We filled in any gaps that existed in the North. I'd say that at the end of the Civil War, there was around 30, 35,000 miles of railroad. By 1916, when it reached its peak, there were 216,000 216, miles, 175,000 miles of track laid in about 50 years. And an awful lot of the people that did this work were Civil War names that uh, some better known than others. Willie Mahone great division commander in Lee's army. He was a railroad man before the war. He was the fellow that built up what's now the North, Norfolk and Western system. Tom Rosser, cavalryman, was chief engineer of the Northern Pacific at one time. Ambrose Burnside, whiskers and all, was engaged in railroad promotion in Ohio and about as effectively as he, effectively as he was as a general. 
<laughs> William Jackson Palmer, called general. He was brevet. He'd been a colonel of cavalry during the war, Quaker, old Pennsylvania Railroad man. Built first the Kansas Pacific, and then the Denver and Rio Grande. In Colorado, fuel and iron, in Colorado College, and God knows what all. Quite a guy was Palmer. A Civil War correspondent by the name of Henry Ballard became famous for completing the Northern Pacific Railroad. Union Pacific's chief engineer was the famous General Grenville Dodge. His chief of construction was a guy out of the 23rd Corps, Brigade Commander General Jack Casement. These were some men. Very, very fascinating. I'm going to close by uh, saying it's been a lot of fun talking to you. Uh, I'm going to quote from that chap from Milwaukee who wrote the book on Rosecrans. Any questions you ask will be answered in the same friendly spirit. <laughs> upon his carcass, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> Charlie, um, I think we all agree it was as good as we expected, better than we deserve, and I think that you know that we have a small gift for you. I know it's something you've never seen before, <laughs> and probably have, did not know that we give to anyone. And even though Charlie Falkenberg wanted to be able to give this to you, the pleasure falls upon me. And it never was more deserved than it is tonight. Thank you, gentlemen. I have a problem. I don't know whether to put it on my desk or my mantelpiece, but I'll solve it somehow. Oh, there's Falkenberg. I thought he went home. No, he's still around. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I think if you want to if you want to prepare another talk as good as the one tonight, we'll be glad to give you another one. Before we turn over to questions, I do have once uh, another announcement that I forgot to make before. Um, the members of the executive committee are well aware of this. The rest of you are not. Um, next April is the 150th anniversary of the birth of a gentleman by the name of Ulysses Grant. In honor of that event. The roundtable, in connection with the Chicago Public Library, uh, the head of the library board being someone who is a member of this group by the name of Mr. Newman, um, is going to hold an event in the GAR room of the library. As many of you know, the library is being rebuilt from the inside out, and the GAR room will be closed sometime next, late next spring, early next summer, and will not be reopened for several years. So that fact that it gives us a last chance to visit the GAR room and its wonderful collection of Civil War items, and also the 150th anniversary of Grant's birthday. In honor of that, we're going to hold a dinner and meeting in the GAR room. The dinner will be catered in. Ladies will be welcome, uh, for those who'd like to come. And the guest speaker for the evening will be a young fellow from a small college down south who's written one or two books about the Civil War. His name is T. Harry Williams. So I think we all can anticipate a great evening on that night. It will not, and I want to repeat this, it's very important, it will not be our normal second Friday of the month. It will be the third Friday. The date, I think, is the 21st, but I'm not sure. I think it is April 21st. It is the third Friday of April next spring. 
Our regular meeting will be canceled on the second Friday, and I'm in hopes, I haven't had a chance to get in touch with them, but I'm in hopes that our previously scheduled speaker for that month, Bob Fowler of Civil War Times, will be able to join us in June. But that's tentative. But please mark your calendars for the 21st of April. I think it's going to be a real great evening, and I would call it to your attention. And now I'll turn the floor over to Charlie and to those of you who would like to lay him low. Are there any friends in the house? Hi, Mike. Hi, Charlie. I'll, I'll just leave him there. Uh, I think the greatest railroad event during the Civil War it didn't have anything to do with any battles at all, but the linking up of the two coasts when the Union Pacific started in Omaha to Central Pacific in Sacramento and met a promontory in Utah. They drove it up over the spike. That was in 1862. But 69, Mike. Right. I could talk a little bit about you. I want to ask you about that. It's so close to the relationship of the war. Was that mostly promoted by the federal government or by the promoters? Or who were the guys that were really behind that? Let's see if I can keep that answer down to a reasonable proportion. First of all, Pacific railroads were talked about constantly from the 1830s on. There was one milkman from up in Massachusetts who spent himself broke promoting them. Uh, they were seriously considered. After all, the Army was formed. They had a real problem out there in the West. And uh, the only trouble was here came that sectional conflict. Nobody could agree as to where the road should be built. When Jefferson Davis was Secretary of War, he commissioned four surveys. There was a northern route, we call it the Northern Pacific Railroad, when it finally got built. There was a central route, which we now call the Union Pacific. There was the 45th parallel route, which is roughly the Santa Fe. And the southern route, which is the Southern Pacific Line out of Los Angeles into uh, New Orleans. The southerners opted for the southern route, and uh, the northerners were more for the central route. Nobody, not too much political population in Duluth in those days. And. <laughs> Anyway, uh, one of the interesting sidelights is the reason we own that little piece of Arizona called the Gadsden Purchase was the survey revealed that they needed it for the railroad. Uh, when the war started, all of a sudden, this looked more and more like a military necessity. California's in the Union. There was always some fear that these western states might secede themselves uh, and separate themselves from the country entirely. After all, you know, in 1849, what did it take three months, six months to get across the country in a covered wagon? The, uh, so when the war started, all of a sudden the Southerners had gone home, and like many other things, uh, now could be accomplished in the Congress. So a Pacific Railway Act was passed, and uh, this was met by a dull, sickening yawn. Nobody was interested. A fellow by the name of Thomas Durant, who was one of the promoters of the Rock Island, who incidentally dodged his early railroad careers on the Rock Island, had... Uh, uh, <coughs> He wanted to get the railroad going. He opened some subscription books. They sold a few shares of stock. So somebody said, let's give them a subsidy. And that was the land grant. That didn't do it either. It was pretty hard to influence moneyed capital to build across the Wild West where there was no traffic and a lot of Indians. And there seemed to be a lot better, more profitable opportunities near home. So eventually, uh, they sweetened it a little bit. They doubled the size of the land grant, and they uh, allowed this railroad a loan in government bonds of uh, 
so much per mile of track. 16,000 in government bonds in the flat, 32,000 in the hills, 48,000 in the mountains. There were two railroads to be built. One was the Central Pacific from Sacramento to the California Line. The Union Pacific was to build from Omaha to the California Line. Now, rather than get into the history of the Union Pacific, it really didn't start going until after the war. Labor supply came out of the Army. You read Dodge's accounts of building the Union Pacific. When they had Indian troubles, the guys lined up like troops, <laughs> took their guns, and away they went. Uh, the interesting thing was, first of all, they named it at Council Bluffs as the start of the Union Pacific Railroad. This was a key element. Secondly, Mr. Lincoln, and he called Dodge in from the Army for advice on this subject, says, what gauge? And they came up with four feet, eight and a half inches of gauge, and that's why it's the standard gauge today, because remember, there are all kinds of gauges in the North when the war started. And that's what made the difference. Yes, sir? Did not the Illinois Central figure pretty prominently in the Civil War? It sure, it did. But it was flying, in the Illinois Central in those days, was from Chicago, well, the main line in Illinois Central, many people don't even realize, runs from Carroll, Illinois, all right, but that goes north to Dubuque, Galena. The branch, which is now the main line, came off at Centralia and went into Chicago. And, of course, this was how they got troops out of the Chicago area, out of Wisconsin, and down into southern Illinois for the campaign south. It was after the war the Illinois Central started buying up southern railroads. Yes, sir. Uh, what evidence do you have of sabotage uh, by nor northern managers of southern railroads? Well, let's see. I think that book that you loaned to me and uh, talks about the fellow that ran the RF&P as being a northern sympathizer suspected of sabotaging the southern effort. That's the only case I've come across, Miner. There was, this is something I should have mentioned. There were a lot of northern people running southern railroads, not only as managers but as mechanics and the like. Don't forget that Mechanical expertise was somewhat beneath the dignity of the average Southerner, and they, were, they had to go north to get these technical experts. But most of them were pretty loyal supporters of the Southern Railroads throughout the war. Wadley at one time ran the Southern Railroads, and uh, he was from Georgia, but he was originally from the north, a Yankee. Mort? How much of the, these railroads were subjected to military uh, law? Military occupation? In the South, they never could work up their courage to do that. You know, uh, when they believed in state rights, boy, they really believed in them. And I think any review of the situation, and how you, know, you look at it and read it, it's apparent how desperately they needed this transportation. You wonder why the heck they didn't seize the railroads and use them for military purposes, but they never did. In the North, the military railroads early were given authority by can Congress to seize a railroad they needed for military purposes. Now, this was seldom done in the North. They did it at the time of Gettysburg. This was what Hop did to get those small railroads operating. Very, very occasionally would it happen. Most of the southern seizure of railroads, or the southern the military seizure of railroads by the northern military people were the southern roads. And many times they didn't have to do it. For instance, Louisville and Nashville, the sort of a border state road, it's pretty much Kentucky Railroad at that time. The president of that railroad was a former southern sympathizer who put his uh, sympathies where his money was coming from. I don't think they ever had to seize the railroad. Yeah, George? Speaking of General Hopp, mm -hmm. I have a two-point question. The first one is, where the hell is the Hoosick, Hoosick, or Hoosick Tunnel? Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, that's now the Boston Main Railroad. It was known as the Fitchburg at one time, and it's up... Uh, right out of Troy. Yeah, right out of Troy, New York. Northern Massachusetts, through the Berkshires. The next one, the next question is, didn't Hopp ever get anywhere except on the Orange and Alexander Railroad? He was. He came to duty. He was a friend of McDowell's. That's where he first came to duty when McDowell was in the second Bull Run campaign. They brought him down because of his acknowledged expertise in railroad engineering. He was good. There's no two ways about it. He's also a very irascible person. After all, he was a West Point graduate, and he thought he knew everything, and in some cases he knew quite a bit. He was not above writing letters to the general commanding the army or President Lincoln telling him how to fight the war. He did this constantly. In short, he was a pain in the, you know what, pain in the neck, moving him up quite a bit. <laughs> but he was not really a general. Yeah, he had a general's commission, which he never formally accepted. But he never accepted. He got paid as a general all the time he was on duty. Well, that's a big question. <laughs> accept that? accept that's a brevet setup. <laughs> well, he accepted the pay, but not the commission. Right. Exactly. Didn't wear a uniform either. Yes, sir. I was wondering if you might say something about the uh, railroad guns and the gigantic mortars like the Dictator. Mm -hmm. Were they uh, really widely used? Not particularly. I think that this was largely siege operations when they got involved in this stuff. I really don't know very much about it, and you don't see it too often. I think there's some pretty good pictures of them. You still got that book, haven't you, Dick? Civil War Railroads, George Abdel? Uh, yeah. Got a lot of excellent pictures of the Civil War equipment. What do you say, <laughs> my friend from Hammond? Uh, how did Jackson move 30 to 50 ton locomotives over dirt roads? This was a macadamized turnpike, and they weren't up to 50, they were up to 15 to 30. Uh, and he took the best ones, and he only got 14 of them over the road. Did you run them under their own power? No, no. no. Towed them with horses. Yes, that's right, they did. And uh, before a lot of land-grant railroads, which used to save the government a lot of money. The, uh, their problems, some of them actually during the war became less profitable despite the great increase in business. They're having problems getting good help. A lot of it, you know, they let get away from them early in the war. And it takes a great deal of skill to operate a railroad. George Donovan's father was a conductor. He'll attest to that. <laughs> Uh, and they missed the skilled help. They missed them badly. <coughs> Secondly, there was an inflation in the North, not as bad as it was in the South, but it was there. And that cut into their earnings quite a bit, too. Homer, you had a question. Is there any sabotage in the Northern uh, area? Not particularly, no, unless you want to call the... Uh, remember when the war started and they had the riot in Baltimore, the uh, Southern mayor of Baltimore, and I guess the governor of Maryland, if I remember correctly, was a southern sympathizer. They burned down the bridges, and they had a heck of a time getting troops through there. He was finally used force. Well, I guess Stanton pinched her, I know, but somebody locked up the Maryland legislature, at least the pro-slavery members of it. Charlie? Yes, when? Uh, was the, uh, the car ferry developed uh, in the Civil War, or the barges? That's a good question. They did use them. They used them around Washington. Uh, they took the... Uh, don't recall now where the barges came from, but they could 
lashed, I think it was two barges together and put four, no, eight railroad cars on them crossways. And they'd take them from Alexandria down the Potomac and on to the dock that they had at Akaya Creek. And that's the way they transferred it. Now, that's the earliest use I know of was barges in that manner. Although the early Pennsylvania Railroad had a screwy setup, I kind of brushed by that. Pennsylvania, when they started the, uh, you know, the main line, they talk about those Philadelphia suburbs as the main line. That comes from the main line of public works. It was a state project back in the 1830s out of Philadelphia in the general direction of Harrisburg. The original idea was being built by the public, anybody could use it. Uh, if you had a cart with rail flanged wheels on it and a horse, you put it on the railroad and away you went. Made for some interesting debates when you met somebody coming the other direction. <laughs> and uh, even to the Philadelphians, it became apparent that didn't work too well, so they finally made a real railroad out of it. They connected with a canal system at Harris Harrisburg, and then the canal boats got to the Allegheny Mountains at Holidaysburg. They put them on trams and hauled them up over the mountains on a series of inclined planes and put them back on the water down near Johnstown. And that wasn't too effective either, and that's when Baltimore and Ohio started to challenge them into Pittsburgh where they finally built a railroad. Yes, Stan? Uh, the night before the Federals ended Richmond, mm -hmm. uh, a special train went out of Richmond to go to Richmond, the millions of dollars Neither could I. I've seen a lot of conjecture. <laughs> I think maybe it wasn't as much to begin with as people thought. No, this is gold. This was what was left of the gold supply, but yeah, well, Myron. Uh, most of the uh, locomotive manufacturing uh, was in the north, right. Philadelphia or in the Pennsylvania, Delaware, Jersey area. And some of Cincinnati. Yeah, was there any in the South? <coughs> Predator. Uh, I'm not quite certain of this. They so made I, locomotives? I can't be quite sure of this. Yeah, they made locomotives before the war. Uh, after the war, there was a very big locomotive factory in Richmond known as the Richmond Locomotive Works. And I've always suspected, and somebody probably can correct me on this, I think that uh, that was a descendant of Predator. Richmond Locomotive Works was part of the big combination that made the American Locomotive Company. They put together a whole bunch of them. When did they change over from putting personal names on all the engines to numbers? Well, golly, uh, right to the end of the steam era, they were still naming some locomotives. You know, Baltimore and Ohio had the President Series, and the RF&P had the Governor Series, the General Series. Yuri used to put some of their engineers on the yep. engines after 45 years. Yeah, that's right. Didn't name them. No, as a general habit, this, I suppose, went out when they quit painting them in colorful uh, garb. You know, Commodore Vanderbilt was one of the first ones that painted them black to save money. But they used to be very fancy-looking machines. You see some of these prints along with the gay colors. They're, they're things of beauty, no question about it. They had nice lines to them. Jeremy? Oh, where does the name come from they use for the section hands? Always intrigued me, dandy dancers. Oh, boy. <laughs> It has something to do with these camps that they use to pack the ballast in under the ties. And their motion up and down. I, I, that's a little bit rough as an answer, and it may not be quite right, but it's something along those lines. What is the game? That I'm not sure of. Well, the railroad slang is colorful. 
It really is colorful. I uh, mentioned the name Tallow Pot for a fireman. He was also known, obviously, as a bakehead. <laughs> an engineer was a hero or an eagle eye, and because they called an engine the hog, he was a hogger or a pig mauler or the hero. <laughs> uh, Charlie, uh, with regard to that money that Stan was talking about, uh, Duke's cavalry acted as a guard for Jefferson Davis after he left the railroads, and uh, they distributed a little of the silver. It was very, that millions of dollars is a great exaggeration. There was very little money that actually got down on that train. Very little. And uh, what the silver was distributed to the about uh, three or four dollars a piece to Duke's cavalrymen and the what little gold there was went to the officers. Sounds all right. I remember reading here recently in Civil War Times Illustrated what happened to the Confederate cash in England. They came to the conclusion that Jake Thompson got it. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have been surprised. Charlie, didn't that the name of Shaney Irishman? But it was a crook he was. It beats me. A lot of the Union Pacific people were Irish, but then they were Irish out of the Union Army. After all, when the war ended, these people had been used to living outside. Uh, what was Bruce Catton's line? They'd been everywhere and done everything. They weren't about. To, these fellows weren't about to go back behind a plow or clerking in a bank. And the Union Pacific was where the action was. This is where the excitement was. These were some tough cookies. The history of the building of the Union Pacific uh, is interesting in the sense of the towns that sprung up. They'd uh, have a terminal 100 miles apart, standard in the railroads in those days. It was a day's work on freight. And uh, when was it? At Cheyenne. They were just moving the base from Julesburg. And here comes the train with all these knockdown shanties, saloons, whorehouses, so on, necessities of life. <laughs> Conductor points to the train with his thumb and he says, gentlemen, here's Julesburg. <laughs> Right. There are no further questions. I think on the subject of whorehouses, we'll call it an evening, and the meeting is adjourned.